0: Welcome to the Hills Baptist Podcast. We're so glad you're joining us as we see Jesus glorified, lives transformed and hope revealed in the Adelaide Hills and beyond. We hope you enjoy this message. Today's Bible reading is the book of Obadiah. Don't worry, it's only one chapter. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Obadiah's vision, the vision of Obadiah. This is what the Sovereign Lord says about Edom. We have heard a message from the Lord. An envoy was sent to the nations to say, Rise, let us go against her for battle. See, I will make you small among the nations. You will be utterly despised. The pride of your heart has deceived you. You who live in the clefts of the rocks and make your home on the heights. You who say to yourself, Who can bring me down to the ground? So you soar like the eagle and make your nest among the stars. And from from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. If thieves came to you, if robbers in the night, oh, what a disaster awaits you. Would they not steal only as much as they wanted? If grape pickers came to you, would they not leave a few grapes? But how Esau will be ransacked, his hidden treasures pillaged. All your allies will force you to the border. Your friends will deceive and overpower you. Those who eat your bread will set a trap for you, but you will not detect it. In that that day, declares the Lord, will I not destroy the wise men of Edom, those of understanding in the mountains of Esau? Your warriors, Teman, will be terrified, and everyone in Esau's mountains will be cut down in the slaughter. Because of the violence against your brother Jacob, you will be covered with shame. You will be destroyed forever. On the day you stood aloof while strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. You should not gloat over your brother in the day of his misfortune, nor rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their destruction, nor boast so much in the day of their trouble. You should not march through the gates of my people in the day of their disaster, nor gloat over them in their calamity in the day of their disaster. ...nor seize their wealth in the day of their disaster. You should not wait at the crossroads to cut down their fugitives... ...nor hand over their survivors in the day of their trouble. The day of the Lord is near for all nations. As you have done, it will be done to you. Your deeds will return upon your own head. Just as you drank on my holy hill, so all the nations will drink continually. They will drink and drink and be as if they had never been. But on Mount Zion will be deliverance, and it will be holy. And Jacob will possess his inheritance. Jacob will be a fire, and Joseph a flame. Esau will be stubble, and they will set him on fire and destroy him. There will be no survivors from Esau. The Lord has spoken. People from the Negev will occupy the mountains of Esau, and people from the foothills will possess the land of the Philistines. They will occupy the fields of Ephraim and Samaria and Benjamin will possess Gilead. This company of Israelite exiles who are in Canaan will possess the land as far as Zarephath. The exiles from Jerusalem who are in Sepharad will possess the towns of the Negev. Deliverers will go up on Mount Zion to govern the mountains of Esau, and the kingdom will be the Lord's.
1: Thank you, Brooke. How are we all going? Good. Good. Why don't we take a quick break? Stand up, turn to the person around you and uh, ask what's your favourite battle story? Could be historical, could be from a movie. All right, you don't actually have to tell the story, uh, just name it. Anyway, we'll, we'll call it there. All we needed was a minute or like half a second. Just get us on our feet, get the blood pumping again. Let me tell you uh, a story or a situation. I've, I learned this this just this week have a first image, Amaya. Uh, uh, this is, uh, and I, I'm I'm, I'm apologize to any French people on how I pronounce this. The uh, the Maginot Line. Does anyone know about this Maginot? Hands a bit higher. Um, oh, very good. All the history buffs in the room. Uh, so this is this is uh, after World War One, where the French learned a lot about trench warfare. They invested a lot of money in this particular line along the French border to Germany. So that in World War II, they had the most impenetrable uh, border in the world. And they invested time, invested money, uh, they invested people so that uh, in World War II, when, when Germany was uh, going to invade France, Uh, They put up this wall, they had these bunkers, and these were like state-of-the-art Rolls-Royce bunkers. They had all the latest technology, all the latest ornaments and defense. They had air conditioning, which is just like amazing in in that time. And um, so like really comfy, really defensible, completely impervious to land assaults, air assaults, sea assaults. It was not really relevant because SeaWorld is nowhere near that, but... It was impenetrable. Uh, Belgium to the north uh, wanted, uh, they were getting invaded by Germany. They needed help, uh, but France at the time was like, no, 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 we're putting all our effort into our line and look how tough it is. Look what we've done. Look how impervious we are. There's no way Germany could invade France. But of course what happened was Germany invaded into Belgium because they didn't have as much support from the French, Germany got a foothold there and then from Belgium invaded France and there was actually no battles taking place along this line. They put all this effort in, all this time and money and air conditioning. It was a waste. Their downfall in, in this scenario was their pride. Look at what they did. Look at what they had. They thought they were impervious. They thought they were invincible. They were focused on themselves. And it was their pride that was their downfall. Uh, we're starting a new series uh, called One Hit Wonders, and that's looking at all the books of the Bible that are one chapters long, one chapters, one chapter singular long, uh, books that are often overlooked in our Bible study and, and kind of. Uh, in diving into the Bible, books that we're not as familiar with. And I don't know if you've ever heard uh, Obadiah before. I don't know if you know where it is in the Old Testament. It, t- it often takes me a bit to find it. Uh, Obadiah, come, it's one of the minor prophets. Uh, comes um, The minor prophets, there's Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah. So if you're still, if you're still looking in the Bible, which is totally acceptable, because um, it is hard to find, because it is so short, Uh, There it is, after Amos. Um, It's a very distinctive book for a number of reasons. One, it's a minor prophet. uh, And that's not minor in the sense of insignificant or unimportant. Minor in the sense that it's shorter. There's the major prophets that are a bit longer, minor prophets that are a bit shorter. All are important in Scripture. It's also quite distinctive in that uh, the, the author, Obadiah, there's very little known about him. In fact, you probably know just about as much about Obadiah as I know, because all we really know is his name, is Obadiah, which you all knew. That's all we know about Obadiah. Uh, Next point. The other distinctive uh, part of this book is uh, who it's written to. Now, often in in prophetic writing in the Old Testament, uh, there are other nations that are addressed, but Obadiah is a book that's entirely addressed to the nation of Edom. It's a it's a book written by by a Jew or like kind of out of Israel, but all other books are written to Israel and different points address other nations. Obadiah is a is a letter entirely to the other nations. Um, uh, in verse 1, where it says, this is what the Sovereign Lord says about Edom, uh, it, it, all, like, it could also be translated, this is what the Sovereign Lord says to Edom. This is a letter to this nation of Edom. Now, who are Edom? Great question I hear from you all. Uh, Edom, if we go to the next picture, is the nation south of Israel. And uh, I don't really need a pointer, but I just really wanted to use one it doesn't really work on the TV, so too bad. Um, uh, It's that yellow uh, kingdom right at the bottom there, the nation of Edom. And and Edom and Israel have a really special relationship as two nations. They're actually brother nations because Edom uh, traces its ancestry all the way back to Esau. And Israel traces its ancestry all the way back to Jacob. And Jacob and Esau were brothers. Jacob, in fact, was renamed Israel and had 12 sons. And, and um, that's how the nation of Israel came to be. Esau uh, became the nation of Edom. His descendants becomes the nation of Edom. And throughout the Old Testament at various points, uh, uh, God speaks to Jacob and uh, speaks to Edom and they're, they're meant to be uh, friendly nations, a, a nation where Israel at different points, is tr- they're told to treat them as family, as your brother, although they are separate to the nation of Israel, separate to the called out people of God. And at different points, uh, this this family relationship, extended relationship gets really messy. When Israel are uh, have escaped Egypt and travelling back up into the promised land, into Israel, um, the nation of Edom, they won't let them through. When uh, Babylon uh, invades Israel and tries to, well, yeah, invades Israel, exiles Israel, um, Uh, Edom won't let the Israelite people escape to the south. And we hear about from Obadiah how they treat their brothers, their family. And this book, uh, Obadiah is calling out Edom and calling out and proclaiming God's judgment on Edom. And in this first verse, it talks, we have a message from the Lord An envoy has been sent to all the nations saying, rise up, we're going to battle. God has a battle against Edom, against the pride of Edom. Verse 2, see, I will make you small among the nations. You'll be utterly despised. Verse 3, the pride of your heart has deceived you. The book of Obadiah is all about God's judgment on Pride, on the pride of Edom. Now, pride is a really complex word today. For 2,000 years, it's probably a very negative trait. Uh, But recently, uh, it's become something that's celebrated. Pride, um, if we were to define it in one way, it's a feeling of deep pleasure or satisfaction derived from one's own achievements, feeling of deep pleasure and satisfaction derived from one, one's own achievements. Another um, definition is uh, the consciousness of one's own dignity, one's own value. And that's certainly a, a lot nicer way of describing pride. And certainly this past month uh, has been Pride Month, and our society has has been celebrating pride, saying it's a good thing. And it's a good thing to uh, be conscious of our own dignity, our own value. It's a good thing to find pleasure and satisfaction from our own achievements. But where, where does that dignity and value come from? Is it dependent on us? Do we draw that from within? Where do we put our trust? Where do we rely on? Who do we depend on for our dignity? for our identity, for our value. Another definition of pride is turning our trust away from the God who created and loves us and made us to ourselves, putting our trust in other things. And just this morning, Dave Shepard at Verdun preached an incredibly powerful message on the origin of pride. Where has this concept of pride come from? And this week... You've got two jobs. One is to go listen to Esther Scarborough and her her message on mission. The second one is listen to this message from Dave uh, at Hills Baptist for Dunn on pride, the origins of pride. We're not going to go into that. But what we're going to see from Obadiah is that pride is captivating. Pride is corrupting. Pride will be judged and pride can be redeemed. If you're taking notes, that's uh, where we're heading today. Pride is captivating. Pride is corrupting. Pride will be judged. Pride can be redeemed. So this first point, pride is captivating. Uh, the whole tone of this book is, is one of judgment, one of anger against Edom's pride. Pride. And, and there's um, points where you, we can draw out from the text. We can see where is Edom putting their pride? Where are they putting their trust? Why do, are they so high and mighty and so prideful? Uh, they've been deceived. Verse 3, it says that you who live in the clefts of the rock, you who make home, uh, home on the heights, you who say to yourself, who can bring me down to the ground? Though you soar like an eagle, make your nest among the stars. It's talking about the, the, the political and the ge- geographical situation of Edom. To the south, up mountains, they had an incredibly defensible uh, position as a nation. Uh, they had trade routes that went through them that put them in really good economic standing. Uh, they had uh, wise people. They had an army. They had all these great reasons to be proud they had all these great things going for them that they could put their trust in and rely on. It also talks about uh, the the how they put their trust in friends. A little bit later, it says in verse seven, "All your allies will force you to the border. Your friends will deceive and overpower you. Those who eat your bread will set a trap for you, but you will do not will not detect it." What it's talking about there is the situation, the relationship we, they have with the nation of Babylon. Because when Babylon invades Israel, who's their brother, instead of defending their brother who they're, they're sworn to, they're, you know that's family, it's their own blood. Instead of defending them, they side with the bigger guy, thinking, oh, this, this, is, this is the friend to have. This is the, the popular table I want to sit on. And if I side with them and I'll, if I'm friends with them, that'll be so much better for me. And it's that pride of who we know. Hey, we, we're friends with Babylon. We're allies with Babylon. They portrayed their own brother to, to make that happen. But look at that. But of course, what happens is Babylon turns on them as well. Verse eight it mentions the the wise men of Edom, the the those of understanding on the mountain of Esau. In nine, uh, the warriors of Taman. They have a lot of reasons to be proud. They have a lot going for them. And so, in of, instead of putting their trust in. God. They put their trust in themselves. They beca- take pleasure and satisfaction in their own achievements, in the identity they've created for themselves. And this pride, it, it breeds uh, independence. It breeds self-sufficiency. It breeds success. One, um, uh, one voice. Uh, in the world of them I won't say who it is, but uh, a quote out there, it says, if you believe in yourself and have dedication and have pride and never quit, you're a winner. You'll be a winner. The price of victory is high, but so are the rewards. The price of victory is high, but so are the rewards. If We trust ourselves. If we define from within ourselves our identity and what we want and we go after it, will be successful. It'll go well for us. Is that actually true? Is the price worth the reward? Developing a sense of identity and value and pleasure and, and, and satisfaction that comes from within, it depends on me and what I think and what other people think of me and what I feel, and that's just not reliable. That's just not reliable. Even the, the the deeper issue of pride is defining for ourselves what's right and wrong, who we should be. Defining for ourselves based on our own standards, based on our own convenience, based on our own conviction, it's very easy to get caught up into that, even in the church. This sense of self-sufficiency, the sense of independence, the sense of self-righteousness and success has crept into the church, into the people of God. We see it uh, across the church, across the world. This pride, this sense of we've got this, we can do it. We don't need anyone else. We don't need God. Pride is invading the church. Pride is celebrated throughout the world. And pride is what Edom is being judged for. Pride is captivating. But pride is also corrupting. In verse 10, it, it shares like, what has what this pride led Edom to do? What is it kind of changed and influenced and uh, made Edom do it's made Edom betray their own brother their own brother or sister nation verse 10 because of the violence against your brother Jacob you will be covered with shame and it describes the situation on the the day of uh, destruction on Jerusalem uh, on on Israel or the people of Judah where was Edom What was Edom doing? What what kind of character did Edom have? What had pride led them to be? When Judah, their brother, was in trouble, they were rejoicing over their destruction. They were marching through their gates uh, celebrating. They were gloating about Jerusalem's trouble. They went in and seized their wealth, stole from them. They, they, when, when Jerusalem tried to escape, they waited at the crossroad, verse 14, to cut down their fugitives, to cut them off, sell them into slavery to, to Babylon. Absolutely horrible, brutal people they've become because of their pride. The pride corrupted them to do terrible things to their brother nation to Israel and pride corrupts us pride leads to conflict when we when we when we're fighting for what's right for us and what's best for us our own we're protecting our own identity we're protecting our own satisfaction and pleasure that leads to fighting and protecting what's ours and and fighting back when any of that is challenged pride leads to isolation if i if i can't let on to other people that i'm struggling about something then i've got to face that struggle alone i can't let anyone else know that I'm any less than what I think of myself or any less than what other people think of me. I can't let anyone know that I I struggle with lust or I struggle with anger or I'm struggling in my health or whatever. It's our pride that keeps us from sharing that we're struggling and makes us isolated in that struggle. It's pride that leads to bitterness. As... uh, as um, our identity and what we're protecting gets chipped away and that's challenged. And again, like I said, as we put our trust and our identity on ourselves, we are so flimsy and, and unreliable. And so as we grow, if we're holding on to this pride, it makes us bitter. Bitter against the world because we haven't got what we've deserved. Bitter against other people because they're not behaving how we expect them to. Bitter because of our pride. And pride leads to anxiety. Now, I'm not saying that all anxiety finds its roots in pride. But if we follow pride to the end of the road, you'll find anxiety and depression and despair. Because if we're trying to protect this sense of self and uh, find our pleasure and identity and value and purpose, in ourselves, and we're so flimsy and so unreliable and it's, and it's up to us, we've got to keep performing, we've got to keep it up, that's exhausting. That's anxiety-inducing. It leads to a place of despair. Again, not all anxiety has its roots in pride but you follow pride to the end of the road and you will meet anxiety, depression and despair. Pride is captivating. Pride is corrupting and pride will be judged. Pride will be judged. Verse 15 talks of uh, the day of the Lord is near. The day of the Lord, a big theme in uh, the prophets and the prophetic writing. This day their God will come to judge the proud. And those who who put themselves on a pedestal, those who serve themselves and raise themselves up, they will be brought low. But those who are low will be raised and honoured. This day of the Lord. And it speaks, it's not just Edom, but every nation will, will be judged. It talks about this judgment or another, another way to talk about it is God's wrath. It talks about this wrath as in terms of a drink that is drunk by Edom. And then uh, verse 16, just as you drank on my holy hill, so all the nations will drink continually and they will drink and they will drink and they will drink as if they had never been. Judgment will come on those who have rejected God those who turn to their own pride, those who've gone their own way. Now, we love to think about justice for others. We love to think about justice for the vulnerable. We love to think about justice for ourselves, where we have been wronged, that justice be done. But we don't like talking about justice against ourselves, that the things we have done wrong, the times we have gone our own way, the corruption in our own hearts and minds and souls, that we will be held accountable for that. That if we reject God and go our own way and try to do things our way in our own strength and get our own sense of satisfaction and glory from that, that the judgment that God gives us is to lead us down that path complete separation from the God who made us and the God who loves us, to be handed over to the consequences of our pride. The solution to pride is judgment. The solution to pride is judgment. But the question is, are we going to face that judgment or do we trust in the substitute who is offered for us. Pride is captivated. Pride is c- corrupting. Pride will be judged, but pride can be redeemed. Verse 17 uh, is, is the part of this book that talks about Israel. It's still talking to Edom, but it, but God, Obadiah, talks about Israel. Israel says, but on Mount Zion will be deliverance. It will be holy and Jacob will possess his inheritance. Earlier on, uh, it speaks of uh, a judgment that will come on the mountain of Esau. But on Mount Zion, which is another term of saying in Jerusalem, on the mountain where God's people are of God's people in place and possession, there will be deliverance. God's people will be saved. Now, we don't get this from our Obadiah, but we, we know from the rest of the story of the Bible, it's not because the people of God or the Israel got it right. It's not because they figured out how not to be proud and how to live completely selfish, selfless, selfless holy, kind, perfect lives. The people of Israel were just as bad, if not worse than all the other nations. And I say, if not worse, because they had uh, the very presence of God in the temple. They had God speaking to them. They had the King of the world in amongst them, yet they still kept turning away from Him, still kept putting their pride and their sense of identity and their sense of satisfaction in their own achievements, in their own doing, in their own stuff, instead of the God who's right there. Israel was just as bad as all the other nations. Yet God promised them that they would be His special people, His treasured possession that He will save them. And through Israel, all nations will be saved. It's not because they got it right, but it's because of God's love and grace that Israel are saved. The solution to pride is judgment, as I said before. But the question is, do we face that judgment or do we trust in the substitute given for us? because it's fascinating this written hundreds of years before Jesus it says but on mount zion will be deliverance on mount zion which is mount jerusalem the place where the 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 day the night before jesus was killed he said to his father in heaven let this cup pass from me but not my will but your will be done and the cup he is talking about is the cup of God's wrath, the cup that is mentioned that the nations will drink, the judgment for the world's arrogance and pride and evil. Jesus, God's own Son, sent into the world, came to drink that cup for me and for you, for the nation of Israel, for anyone who would put their trust in Him. Jesus substitutes His life to pay the penalty, to bear the debt, to to receive that judgment on our behalf so that we could be saved. It's not that we are saved and and Christians are saved because we figured it out, we've got it right, we're living good lives. And because we're living such good lives, God goes, well done, good on you. You can be saved, you can be saved or you're not quite up to scratch. No, God sent His Son to be the substitute, to do the work that we couldn't do so that our salvation, our identity, our purpose is entirely wrapped up in the work and the person of Jesus Christ. Not in ourselves, not in our achievements, not in our possessions, not in our families, not in our status, not in our popularity. In Jesus. Not in our sexuality, not in our anything else you could put in, in there. In Jesus, we find our identity, our purpose, our value. We can't save ourselves We need God. And salvation is not just for those who figure it out or try to live better lives, because that's just another version of pride. I'm saved because I'm doing good stuff. I've got it right. I have figured it out. I've prayed the right prayer. It's just another version of pride. We're saved because we desperately need God. And we realize that. And we come to Jesus and trust in his work for us. The opposite of pride is humility. And humility is stepping out of that position of self-dependence and self-sufficiency into a place of deep neediness and deep brokenness and submission to God. It's finding our worth and value and purpose and identity in what God has done, not us. So that we're fulfilled and freed by by something and someone external to us. It's not up to us. God has defined who we are. He's made us. He's saved us. And so we don't need to fight and bicker. We don't need to become bitter because we we know we are safe and secure in Jesus, in what he's done. Pride is a lie. It's a lie that we're told. It deceives us that we need to be self-sufficient, independent, self-righteousness, that we deserve this, that we know better than that person. We expect more of them. We, we are so much better than all that. And we fight and we fight and fight to get what we want, to see things our way, to, to have everyone else see how great we are. But humility is saying, God in his love and grace, even though I'm a wretch, even though I have nothing to bring to the table, he invites me anyway and gives me everything I need. He's saved me. He's given me value, purpose, and meaning. I am a child of God and nothing else. And I don't need to be anything else because I am a child of God. I think this this issue of pride, it keeps coming up. Like, it feels like this is like the fourth or fifth sermon we've had on pride in the last month alone. It keeps coming up. And it's not by our design. We're just, we're just preaching through the Word. I feel God has something to say to us. I think this issue of pride is where we see the gospel in action, where we see, uh, as we realize our deep need of God, and realize that we, we don't need to keep lifting ourselves up and fighting for ourselves. We get released from pride through the gospel, through the knowledge that our identity is defined by God, not by ourselves. It doesn't come from within. It comes from the God who loves us, who created us, who saves us. And conflicts can be redeemed because we stop focusing on ourselves, and we can extend forgiveness, and we can be real about how we've hurt other people and be honest about ourselves. Isolation can be be broken because we can reach out and ask for help. We can admit that we don't have it all together, that we're really struggling in areas, and we don't have to worry that if we admit that we're broken or struggling or wrestling with this, that we're gonna be kicked out of the church or that people will hate us or people will think less of us because there's nothing that we could do that will make God think less of us because God thinks of us like he thinks of his son, Jesus. We have his righteousness, our sin, our brokenness, anything that we might be struggling with, any hurt that we're harboring, that has been removed And all God sees when he looks at us is his son, Jesus, who's sinless, who's perfect. He loves dearly and he loves us. Bitterness can be healed because we've been showed kindness beyond our wildest dreams. And anxiety can be calmed because our value and dignity is not up to us. We don't need to keep fighting for it and protecting it because our identity is in God. Now, this isn't an instant thing. It, when, we, when we believe and trust, it's not like we're fixed in a moment and our pride's completely gone, but it's a journey. It's a journey. And it's a journey that God is invited, uh, inviting us into and, and asking us to put our trust in Him, even in dealing with our pride, which is such a journey. And I wonder if we've been coming to church for a while, we've heard the gospel, the good news about Jesus. We've heard it many times, but have we actually received it? Have we actually taken it and applied it to our own lives? That Christ gave his life for you to save you. That it's not up to you. He's done it. You don't deserve it but he's given it to you anyway. We've heard the gospel. We've heard the good news of Jesus, that deliverance will be on Mount Zion. But will we take that up for ourselves? Why are we still living like we're entitled to what God is offering us? Why do we keep putting ourselves before others? Why are we so proud of who we are and what we've done? Is it time to lay down our pride and to take up the cross? Submit our lives in humble obedience to the God who's given us everything. In a, in a moment, we're going to um, worship again. We're going to hear, be reminded of the promises of God given to us. We'll also sing uh, thanks to Jesus for what he's done for us. And I wonder during this time, if anyone uh, needs to do some business with God, wrestling with pride in our own hearts, parts of our life where we're still relying on ourselves. We're still trying to find that satisfaction, that pleasure, that identity in, in, in something other than God, in our abilities, in our, in, in our effort, in, in what other people think of us, in, in how much we serve and how much we do? Is there work that needs to be done in our heart to be released of that, to lay our pride down and to pick up the cross? that we are saved, we are loved, we're identified by God and Jesus, his work and his work alone. It's so during these those songs, if if that's you, uh, we'll have uh, people in the back corner ready to pray. We'll have elders um, scattered throughout the room uh, or up the front here. You can come and literally kneel down before the cross, lay down our pride before the cross, asking Jesus to come in and Help us grasp it for ourselves. We know it. We know the information. Are you ready to receive the transformation that comes with with the truth that Jesus loves you and has saved you? So let me pray, and then we'll do some business with God as we worship him. Heavenly Father, we thank you. That you are a God of love, that you are a God of grace, you are a God of mercy. And Lord, there's been some heavy stuff uh, in, in the message today. In this book that is so overlooked um, so often, but God, what a powerful message of, uh, against pride. And Lord, this is an issue I know for myself and for everyone. Because we're human beings, we struggle with pride what other people think of us, having that satisfaction in our own achievements, in our own possessions, in our own associations. And Lord, we pray that you would help us to lay that aside and to see you and rely on you and you alone. Lord, we pray that we would embrace more and more our neediness, our dependence on you, that we don't, let this, yeah, Lord, we pray that this community would not be a community that has it all together, that everything's looking great and fine and shiny all the time, that this community will be a community where we can be real and honest about our struggles, real and honest about our hurt, real and honest about everything that might be going on in our lives. Because, Lord, we pray that we would be a community that knows our identity is in Christ that he who knew no sin took on our sin so that we might have his righteousness, his right standing before God. Lord, we pray that this would be a reality for everyone in this room. And not just some information to receive and to know, but Lord, we pray for transformation, that the corruption that, that pride has brought into our lives would be healed, that you change us, transform us and make us more and more in the likeness of your son, Jesus. We thank you and pray this in his powerful, powerful name. Amen.